the word of God read. It reads as follows. When they had heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Have a seat and let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come before you this afternoon, we are reminded uh, by the day, by the music uh, that you have sung, uh, that we have sung uh, today, um, uh, of, this, of this day that remembers fathers. Um, and, and the music in particular has reminded us of that verse that says uh, that you are the one after whom all fatherhood on earth is named. Um, and that's good news. Um, that's something we can, we can give you thanks for. Those of us particularly who have had fathers um, who uh, raised us to know you, uh, who cared for us, uh, who loved us, we can say that, that, that as they were doing that, um, they were pouring out of themselves what you had poured into them, your very identity, who you are. Um, Father, none of our fathers were perfect. Many of us had fathers that were very far from perfect, and, and for, for many of us in this room, Father's Day might be a hard day, uh, hard because of experiences that we've had um, with our own fathers, uh, hard because of experience that we are having as very imperfect fathers, um, hard for those of us who have not been able to be fathers uh, to this point and who long to be. Um, Father, for all here who would struggle, for all here um, for whom Father's Day would be a painful day, uh, we pray um, that, that you would be father to them, that you would be father to all of us, that you would be the perfect father, that you would be uh, the one, uh, again, after whom all fatherhood uh, is named. Uh, so be our comfort, be our refuge, be also our teacher. Um, above all, um, be faithful to your promises. Um, it, it, it's so good to be able to ask you to be faithful to your promises, knowing that your faithfulness is stronger um, than our capacity to ask, um, that, that you are a God uh, who knows how to give good gifts uh, to his children, and, and to know uh, that there is no gift precious um, and more surely given to your people than the Holy Spirit. 
uh, we have been reminded in, in these last weeks of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and uh, we thank you uh, that above all, um, of all, above all the gifts that you've given to your people, you've given yourself um, in the person of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as we come to your word, um, there are promises again that we turn to, uh, that we depend on. Um, you promise that your word never goes out from you void, uh, and so I pray um, for each person in this room um, that you would touch their heart today with your word. Um, I pray that you would uh, touch my heart, uh, even as I'm preaching, um, that you would use uh, the words that we have read, the, the words that I will speak uh, to accomplish your purposes. Um, you, you have said that faith comes by hearing. You have said um, that it is by uh, hearing your word uh, read uh, and preached um, that men and women are changed, uh, that hearts uh, are, are molded, uh, that uh, uh, desire uh, to draw near to you is, is kindled, um, that energy to love our neighbors uh, because you've loved us first um, would be awakened and strengthened and sustained. And so for all of these things, we pray. Uh, we pray that you would do these things uh, for us uh, as we come under um, the, um, the teaching and the authority of your word this afternoon. And so, Father, I pray as always uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so um, we have come to the end of our time in John for now. Uh, this will be the last week that we will be in the Gospel of John. Next week we'll start our summer series in the book of First Peter. Um, in one sense, this is an odd place to stop, um, simply because um, it's, it's probably the case that this is, we're catching Jesus in the middle of a conversation, in the middle of a discourse. It, it, it's, it's, it can be hard to tell. If you look at your Bibles, um, many of them, so we just read through verse 52. Many of them, when you get to verse 53, um, 753 through 811 will either be in little brackets or they might even be down in a footnote. Sometimes some Bibles even put them down below in a footnote. The reason for that is because we're pretty sure that 753 to 811 wasn't originally in the Gospel of John. The, all of the earliest manuscripts we have don't have it there. Um, so this is a case where the evidence is actually pretty good um, that this was not uh, originally in the Gospel. Now, people have looked at it and said, you know, this story of Jesus um, uh, speaking to and forgiving a woman caught in adultery certainly fits uh, fits very well with the rest of the gospel. But um, because we want to be uh, careful and reverent um, with God's word, our practice, um, uh, the practice of many churches, um, is, is not to preach out of 753 to 811. Now, if you, if you just skip straight from 752 to 812, right, so just take that middle part out, you see the next thing it says is, again, Jesus spoke to them. And it kind of sounds like he's just going. He's just still going with the same conversation. Um, so why would we stop uh, here uh, in, in the middle of, of this conversation? It's actually a good place to stop for, for this reason. 
that this passage that we just read um, has to do with how people respond to Jesus. If you notice, uh, Jesus didn't say anything. Uh, this was all about how people are talking about him and how they're responding to him. And that's a good place for us to land for now in the Gospel of John because it fits with the purpose, right? We, we, we've been saying this again and again. You're, you're getting tired of me and Bradley telling you by now that the purpose of this Gospel, according to John himself, it, it's meant to elicit a response. John's purpose is that you would believe. That you would, this is in chapter 20, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have eternal life. The Gospel of John is meant to elicit a response. Um, Jesus' whole ministry is meant to elicit a response. Uh, Jesus' ministry was not one that could just be kind of, you know, taken note of, and then you go on your way and don't think about it again. He said and did things that forced people to respond to him in some way. He made claims about himself. We've been seeing these in recent weeks. He made claims about himself, that he was one with the Father, that his works were the Father's works, that when you saw what he was doing, you were seeing what God was doing. Um, those claims, uh, C.S. Lewis famously said, are the claims either of someone who really is who he says he is, the Lord, or he's a liar or a lunatic, and, and a really dangerous one. I mean, imagine... Imagine someone walking around today making claims like that. Like, we would think the person was crazy. And if the person started attracting a following, we would be very concerned. Um, Jesus' ministry and these words are meant to elicit a response. So, we're going to look today um, at how some of these people um, are responding uh, to, to Jesus. And the main point that I want to get across, if you notice, we, we really get to look at two groups of people. Um, there's kind of a, just people that the Pharisees refer to as the crowd, but it's Jewish people who are at this, fe uh, this feast, the Feast of Booths. Um, and then there's the chief priests and the Pharisees themselves. And in both cases, the response is one of division. There's division among the people. It says so explicitly among, about the people in verse 43. But then you also get this division between the Pharisees and one of their own, Nicodemus. And the main point, I, I want to talk today about, uh, about division. I want to talk today about what it looks like um, for there to be division among God's people. Um, division is something that we don't like. Uh, it makes us very uncomfortable, but I want to argue that division is not inherently a bad thing for the church. There is a kind of division which is a bad thing for the church. What I want to try to, to show us today is that when division pushes us away from Jesus, that kind of division, division that pushes us away from Jesus, that tears the church apart. That breaks down the church. But there is another option. There is the possibility that with our division, we could go to Jesus. We could be divided, but we could go to him. And I want us to try to see that that is something that can actually build the church up. Okay? 
So that's, that's what we're going to try to, to see as we look at these, at these two groups. Um, look, division, you know, as I say, it's something we don't like. It makes us uncomfortable. It is, um, uh, for better or for worse, it is, it is thoroughly an element of the world that we live in. Um, I remember um, back before, before he was doing The Late Show, Stephen Colbert had that satirical news show called The Colbert Rapport. Remember this? So this is where he was playing a character. He was playing this conservative talk show host. Um, and I remember this little bit that he had where he was talking about America. He was saying, you know, people used to use the metaphor of a melting pot for America. Um, people come from all over the world and, and, it, and they become part of this one nation. And people said, yeah, but that's not quite right because in a melting pot, everything kind of like, you know, becomes one homogenous substance. And that's not really what happens here. People, people remain, you know, distinct from each other and retain some of their diversity. And so maybe a fruit salad. Fruit salad was the next metaphor that people used to use uh, to describe America. And, and Colbert's bit, he said, I'd like to propose a different, a different analogy. And he holds one up. He says, the Lunchable, multiple hermetically sealed compartments of food that never touch each other and are completely sealed off from one another. And, you know, you see that and, it, and it, you're like, oh, it's kind of depressing. That's not bad um, as, a, as, a, as an analogy. Um, now, this was, if this was on the Colbert Report, that means it was at least early 2010s. You know, so things have gotten much worse since he said that. Um, you know, the last five, six years have, have only seen these things uh, get, get even worse. There was a, an article in The Atlantic this past week. It was an excerpt from George Packer's latest book um, in which he's proposing that you can't really see America divided just into two. You know, it's not just left, right, red, blue. Um, he's proposing four Americas. Um, four Americas, um, he says, you know, there's, there's, there's free America. This is kind of the caricature would be like the extreme libertarian. Um, there's real America, that's the heartland, right? Real America. Um, there's smart America, which are your technocratic elites. Um, and then there's just America that sees America as a bunch of that, you know, oppress and are oppressed by each other. And, um, you know, the history is, is one of wrongs that need to be righted. And, and if you think about those four distinct groups, you, you can, you can kind of see how you could even slice and dice those even thinner and there's combinations. I mean, the point is, we have a lot of divisions in our society. And those same divisions show up in the church. Um, last week, the Southern Baptist Convention was in the news a lot. Um, I, when you're large enough as a denomination, you actually get in the news. Um, and, and the same divisions, uh, political ones that are in our country, were showing up um, at the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, the same divisions are going to show up uh, in a couple weeks um, when the PCA gathers for General Assembly in St. Louis. Um, that won't make the news. Um, we're, not, we're not that big. Um, but those same divisions are going to show up. Um, I say that partially to encourage you to pray. Pray for General Assembly. Um, we're going to be talking today about, again, going to Jesus with our divisions in a way that would build up the church. And that is one of my prayers um, for what's going to happen in St. Louis. Uh, in, in a couple weeks. Um, 
I think this passage, if you look at who the people are, we're not so much talking about divisions between people who don't believe in God and people who do. Everybody in this passage believes in God. Um, these are all religious people. They're all looking for the Messiah. You know, they all have different expectations about who he may be. Um, and so in that sense, this, this passage feels more aimed at the church. Like, what do we do with the divisions amongst ourselves, amongst people who claim the same faith? Um, it seems to me that if we look at these two groups, or these, these two, um, the two halves of the passage, 40 to 44, and then 45 to the end, what we see going on um, is division that has uh, two different root causes. I want to talk about each of these in turn um, and talk about what it would mean to take these two different kinds of division to Jesus. On the one hand, the first group seems to be dividing simply over ignorance. They, they, they just don't know who Jesus is. They all have different ideas about who he might be, and they don't know, and they're just disagreeing. Who is this? Who is this man? Um, so one kind of division just comes from, from ignorance, um, or a lack of information. I don't want to put it pejoratively. It's just a lack of information, right? Um, but then in the second half, division is arising from a desire to preserve one's own power. The Pharisees are feeling threatened. Uh, their authority uh, is, is under threat. Um, so it's a very different kind of division that takes place there. I want to look, look at each of these in, in turn. So, first of all, if we go to verse 40, uh, we are told, when they had heard these words, going back to what Bradley preached on last week, when they had heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And then they start having this disagreement about, wait, but the Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Isn't Jesus from Galilee? So they start having this whole, this whole disagreement uh, about that. Um, the reference to the, the prophet, if you remember, um, we've mentioned this before, back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, God is going to send you someone else like me. Um, that's the prophet. That's, that's who it is that they're expecting to come, another prophet like Moses. And Jesus, since he's, uh, he's fed them with bread, right, and he's just talked about streams of living water, you think about what Moses did with manna in the wilderness and, and water from the rock, the comparison is pretty apt. Some of them are starting to say, maybe this is the prophet. Others say, no, no, perhaps he's, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Um, keep in mind that uh, in their expectations, those, those people weren't necessarily the same person, the prophet, uh, the Messiah. Um, back in the first chapter of John, John the Baptist was asked, who are you? And if you remember, he had to deal... He dealt separately with these questions. Are you the Christ? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. They said, who are you? He said, I'm, I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness. Um, so it's really only in retrospect. Maybe it was after uh, when Jesus um, walked with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, and, and he showed them how all of the scriptures were pointing towards himself. Um, it's really only at, maybe only after that happens that Christians start to realize that the prophet, the priest, the king, the suffering servant, all of these 
Old Testament figures were all pointing at the same person. Um, they, didn't, they didn't necessarily know that uh, right, off, right off the bat. So they get in this disagreement, we see, about where he's from. Here's another example of John using irony, right? Um, isn't he supposed to be from Bethlehem? Well, he is. They just don't know that. Um, he's, he's grown up uh, in, in Galilee, um, and so they don't, they don't realize uh, that he is uh, from, uh, from, from Bethlehem. Um, and it says at the end of this first section, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And, and John doesn't add this, but it kind of goes without saying, why didn't anybody arrest him? Jesus has said it before, his hour hasn't come yet. It's not time uh, for him to be arrested. So what do we, what do we make of this? Um, first of all, this, this lack of information, uh, this, this ignorance that leads to disagreement and division. I think a lot of us um, are in the habit of trying to divide Jesus up, you know, into the different roles that he plays. Um, and we all have our favorite. So for some of us, we like the fact that Jesus is our savior. Uh, we're not so sure about him as our Lord. Uh, we like him as our teacher. I think he has very wise things to say. Or maybe we're drawn to him as a healer. Um, perhaps for us, it's, he's our substitute. He died for my sins. But we can start to divide and to disagree over which of those is most important. And some of us could even start to leave one or the other of those uh, to the side. Um, Tim Keller used to tell this, this story uh, in, in his sermons. Um, it goes, I found it in a sermon way back in the late 80s, so this is an old story, about a friend of his named Barbara Boyd. And she used to say, you know, it'd be really weird if I went to a dinner party and I rang the doorbell and the door opened and they said, oh, come in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd. You know, say, what does that mean? I am Barbara Boyd. You can't take Barbara without Boyd. Um, in the same way, uh, Jesus is, yes, teacher, yes, healer, yes, substitute, savior, um, and Lord. Um, we can't divide him up along these lines and only take the parts of him that we like and that we don't like. Um, when we were praying earlier, uh, James made a a Ricky Bobby Talladega Nights uh, reference, and I actually had one, as it happens. Um, because what, one of the funniest scenes in that, this is a Will Ferrell movie, um, you know, the one where he plays the race car driver. And there's that scene when he's saying grace before dinner, and he's, and he's praying, and he keeps saying, you know, dear little baby Jesus. And he says it a couple times. He says, like, dear baby Jesus a couple times, and one of his relatives finally says, you know, he grew up. He was a man. It's like, I prefer the baby Christmas Jesus, all right? Um, and he gets like even more and more specific. Dear, eight pounds, six ounce, little baby Jesus, can't even. And, and eventually his family is going around saying, you know, which, what, what they like to think of as Jesus. And some of them are just like, one of his kids said, I like to think of Jesus as a ninja samurai warrior. Um, you know, it, it's absurd, but it's not that different from what we do. Which Jesus do you prefer? 
Which is the Jesus that you want to let into your life, and which is the Jesus that you want to push out? Um, what are the things that Jesus says that make you uncomfortable enough to say, I, I just can't deal with that? Um, one of the ways that we need to go to Jesus together uh, for us to be built up uh, is that we would together uh, see who Jesus is in his totality, in his entirety. And how do we do that? How is it that we go to Jesus um, with these kind of disagreements, right? Some of us prefer the social justice Jesus. Some of us prefer the, the, the morality and righteousness Jesus. He was both of those things in ways that don't sit real well with any of our political parties. Um, so what do we do? What does it mean to go to Jesus to overcome this? Um, it means to go to the scriptures. It means to go to corporate worship. Uh, it means to be here together. Uh, it means to pray together. Like I said, Wednesday mornings we pray with our Bibles open um, so that we can read God's word and then pray for each other, for the church, directly out of what God says. Um, because our, our, our tendency, our tendency always, when we're not rooted in the scriptures, uh, when we're not coming together, corporate worship, prayer, uh, other opportunities that we have to gather in community groups or, or prayer groups or different things that we have during the week, to be with God's people um, and, to, and to hear the stories and the experiences um, and then to hold those under the scriptures, right? Um, our tendency always is going to be to subtly cast Jesus in our own image. Uh, to cast the God who made us in his image in our own image. And when we do that, that's the thing that really divides the church. Because when we do that, we take the, 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 the things that divide us, we take our differences and we absolutize them. We make them like, this is what God is like. Um, so, this is the first encouragement to us. Can we, can we come together and go to Jesus uh, with our disagreements about who he is? Um, our, for lack of a better word, our ignorance, because we're still learning. Um, and do that under the scriptures. Um, oh, I forgot to mention, before I go to the next section, I, I just forgot to mention, um, one of the things about this passage that I love is that I think it, it, it indirectly shows us the promise of going to Jesus with our divisions, um, more, more by showing us that there are missed opportunities. I mean, like I said, they, they don't know he's from Bethlehem. They could have asked him. Like, somebody could have gone to Jesus. Jesus, where are you from? Um, there actually was an opportunity that they missed to go to Jesus. Um, but let's look at this next this next, uh, the second half uh, of, of the text. So now we get to where the Pharisees are having their authority threatened. And you can see right here in the text just how sharp the threat is, right? They sent people to arrest him. One of the ways that we know that all of this is taking place in the temple is that the, their officers would only have had authority to make an arrest inside of the temple. Outside the temple, um, Rome is in charge. Um, but Jesus has been in the temple, the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him, and they didn't. They came back without him. And the Pharisees say, why didn't you bring him? 
And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Um, so you can see you know, exactly where this, this threat is coming from. And keep in mind, by the way, when you, when you picture these officers, the, these are not like you know, uh, mercenary goons. Um, these, are, these are Levites. These officers had to be Levites, which meant they had a lot of religious training. Um, these were well-educated people. Um, that's one reason that the Pharisees, uh, in their response, they don't say, their response to them isn't to say, how dare you disobey our orders, right? They say, have you also been deceived? They're basically saying, you should know better. How is it that you're impressed with what this guy is saying, with all of your religious training? Um, they also make this condescending reference you know, to the crowd, right? This crowd that doesn't know the law. Um, despite the fact, I mean, in the first part of, of the passage, uh, the people demonstrate that they actually do know the scriptures pretty well, uh, but they're condescending. They're basically saying, listen, only fools, only a fool would go after this man. Um, that might be another use of irony, I suppose, uh, if you think about the way Paul talks about the foolishness of Christ in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, the foolishness of God's wisdom, um, the foolishness of preaching elsewhere. Um, they're basically saying only a fool uh, would go after uh, this man. And they say, certainly none of us, none of us, none of the uh, authorities or the Pharisees has believed in him. And then immediately they're refuted as Nicodemus, I don't know if he was you know, kind of sheepishly, uh, excuse me, um, Nicodemus, one of their own, speaks up um, with a, a somewhat half-hearted challenge. Uh, Does our law judge a man? without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. And they reply, are you from Galilee too? It's a way of saying, are you from a backwater too? Uh, you're also an uneducated fool? That's what they're saying uh, to Nicodemus. Um, one of the things that I want us to see here is how the Pharisees' fear of their own authority being challenged um, drives them to actually bend the truth in what they say. They say, search the scriptures, or excuse me, um, search. They say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee uh, to Nicodemus. Um, that's actually not true. Uh, and they would have known that. Uh, Jonah is from Galilee. Nahum uh, is, is from Galilee. Uh, there may have been a few others. It's, it's not clear. But at least those two um, were uh, from, from Galilee. Um, but the other thing that I want us to see that I think is, is instructive for us um, is how um, a threat to their authority, a threat to their power, drives them not to really deal with what anyone is saying to them, you know, whether it's Jesus' words, the officer's words, Nicodemus. Um, they're just, they're, they're, they're oversimplifying everything. They're saying, you're only saying that because you're uneducated, you're a fool, you're from Galilee too. Right? It's a way of, of oversimplifying and talking down to, to one's opponent. You know, it says, you only say this because X, and you don't have to deal with what's actually being said. Um, I think we're seeing this a lot, um, both in our political divisions, but again, those same political divisions are showing up in the church. You know, so when someone wants to, to, to talk 
um, about racial injustice. Um, there can be a very quick move to say, oh, that's just critical race theory. You're just buying into a socialist program. And therefore, I don't have to listen to you. Therefore, I don't have to deal with what you're actually saying or what you're pointing to. Um, you see this from the other side as well. Um, during COVID, you know, there were a lot of Christians saying, you know, yes, we want to take this disease seriously, um, but are we, are, we, are we sure we're really balancing all the risks properly? Are we sure we're really taking account of the mental health losses to people as they're cut off from people? Um, very quickly, the response would come back, you're anti-science. Or even worse, you're a Trump supporter. And therefore, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to deal with you. I don't have to really think about what you're saying. Um, this is something that we are able constantly to do uh, to each other. Um, and as we see here, it's a very old practice. Uh, it's something that people do um, when, they are, when they are threatened. Um, what would it mean, then, to go to Jesus with our divisions here? Um, what would it mean for us to take these kinds of disagreements and divisions uh, to, to Jesus? Well, I think it means a few things. One, um, rather than being defensive of our own authority, um, we could have humility, recognizing that our ultimate authority is Christ. Again, recognizing that the scriptures um, are our ultimate authority. Um, we, could, we could let go of something that we never had to begin with, that kind of power, uh, that, that kind of authority. Um, we could embrace the tension that exists, being a people with God's word that speaks to us with clarity and with authority, but which also says some things that are really hard for us to understand and which embraces mysteries that we don't expect ever to fully comprehend. Um, we can be comfortable and embrace uh, that, that kind of tension. Um, I think here, in this part of the passage, again, there is a tragic missed opportunity that I think that we could take advantage of also. Um, I'm asking the question, what does it mean for us to go to Jesus? But there was one among them who had, right? Nicodemus. Back in chapter 3, um, he had wondered, who is this Jesus? He had heard his teachings. Um, if you remember when he first showed up, he said, you know, we know that people can't do what you're doing if you're not from God, but we, we have some questions. Who are you? There was one there who had actually gone to Jesus. Um, he had gone to Jesus in the darkness, under cover of night. Um, possibly out of fear. Um, he had gone in a way that was risky for him. Um, he had wrestled at that point alone with these, with these questions. Uh, and in the darkness, he went to Jesus alone to try to work through them. Um, I think that we have some people like that in our midst. I think that some of the people who are bringing some of the hardest issues that we have to work through. Um, again, issues of racial injustice, um, 
issues also of, um, of, of sexual uh, abuse and injustice inside of, of the church. Um, some of these are people who have spent a very, very long dark night of the soul. It is hard to speak up about these things inside of the church. Um, you don't have to look very far to see why it's hard um, and, and how easily people like this can get shut out and shut down. So when these people are speaking up, we can listen expecting that they have wrestled in a dark night of the soul with Jesus on their own and that this can be a gift, that this can be a gift uh, for us to listen to. I think that if our divisions push us towards Jesus, this ultimately is something that builds up the church. And I mean that in two different ways. On the one hand, I, I mean that internally. I think it, 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 it will build us up. It will encourage us. It will strengthen us. It will feed our faith. It will make us more holy, more righteous. It will make us more like Christ. It will build up the church in that sense. I also think that it will draw more people to the church. Because if you think about how rife our world is with division and with rancor and how impossible it's been to get past these things, um, a church that is coming together and taking its disagreements and its divisions to Jesus um, can be a beautiful thing, uh, can be a really beautiful thing. I, I do want to be careful about what that means, though. Um, because the point, the main point is not simply for the church to be beautiful. It's not for the church to look like a beautiful society. That's not our calling. Um, our calling is not that we would look beautiful. It's to make Jesus beautiful. Um, what I think that means, then, is that it's important that as we come together, uh, as we talk through the things that divide us, it's important that the ground of our unity not be simply, you know, that we just like each other so much. Um, or what I think should be, you know, my, my tendency is to think that we should be able to be united because we're, we're just, we're clever enough, we're reasonable enough. Like, we should be able to, like, sift through complicated issues and, and come to resolutions. Um, but if but that's not the witness that we're meant to have. We're not meant to witness um, simply to our agreeableness or our cleverness and our, and our sophistication. Um, the really beautiful thing which would be a church united in spite of divisions that couldn't be fully resolved. A church that could understand itself to be members of one body even when we couldn't hit on all of the answers and all of the solutions uh, to all of our, of our disagreements. Um, look, I think this is just one special case of what Bradley preached about last week. Um, last week, Bradley preached uh, about Jesus um, offering living water. He had, he had told the woman at the well, I will give you living water. Uh, at the feast, he stood up. And he said, 
Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Um, and if, 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 if you're a member, the point of that, uh, the, the, the key takeaways from that is that on the one hand, there's only one source. You know, we only get living water, we only get life from one source. But then, as that happens, as God's love, as his spirit is poured into our hearts, out of us flows living waters um, that slake the thirst of others. And that's how that river, remember that river that gets bigger and deeper and wider the further it goes? Um, that's the only way that that, that that happens. So there's only one source. We never become our own source. Um, but rather we become a conduit. Um, if, we can, if, we can, if we can be united, not because we're smart enough or because we like each other enough or Worst of all, uh, because we've just segmented ourselves so that we never really have to deal with anybody different from ourselves. Um, but rather, if we really can be united by the gospel, that is a witness um, that's faithful. It, if, this, if the ground of our unity is that we understand ourselves fundamentally to be created, by a God who loves us, but then rebels against that God, and then saved by his grace without any deservedness of our own, um, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us and forgave the people who were killing them while he did it. Um, in other words, if the ground of our reconciliation with other people is that God first reconciled himself to us, um, that leads to a witness of unity um, that will draw people, uh, that will draw them in, that will graft them in. Um, this is exactly what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, he talks about the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, first, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. And then this great verse, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, that is a unity that will persist and that can be robust. Um, that is a unity that makes space for all of us um, at this table that we're coming to now. So before we go to this table and are fed, let's pray together.